Hey, good morning, everybody. So good to see you. Good to be with you. You know, sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes God's people do things that at first blush appear to make no sense. They make choices that other people wouldn't make. Sometimes Christians take counterintuitive action for the good of God's larger work. For example, when Frisco Bible Church was just an idea, this guy, Gene Getz, was leading a flourishing congregation in Plano, the, the city next to Frisco. And without me even asking, or even thinking to ask, Gene encouraged four families to jump in with Frisco Bible Church and be a part of our launch. He called me up. I answered the phone. It was Dr. Getz. He said, Wayne, I hear you're planning a church. I've got four of our church families I've already spoken to about joining you. Here's their contact info. It was just amazing. And I found out later that Dr. Getz did that despite the fact that at that time he was working on a different church plant of their own. And I talked to him about that later, and, and he just said to me, well, it was the right thing to do. It was the right thing to do for the good of the universal church. Do you see the big idea here? This servant of God had his eyes beyond his own work, his own plans, his own organization. Don't misunderstand. He was not abandoning his own responsibilities. He was just caring about all of God's efforts. This beautiful property that you're on right now, where you and I get together and to grow in Jesus Christ. I don't know if you know this. This was basically given to your church. The, the lady who inherited this property had every right to charge full price for it and make all the money she could on this land. But she had heard me teach at a Bible study in Dallas. And unbeknownst to me, she had land in Frisco and she heard we were planning a church. And she came and met with me and she said, and I quote, I want scripture to be taught like that on my daddy's land, the land my dad bought in 1930. So at her insistence, and we tried much, many times to talk her out of it, at her insistence, we paid basically 10 cents on the dollar for this property. And in fact, she insisted on holding the note, which is technically illegal biblically. You're not supposed to do that. Don't be surety for your brother. And I told her that, and she said, well, young man, I know scripture too. And if I don't care if I get paid back, then I can do what I want. And I said, you are right. Amen. <laughs> <clears throat> The point is, Frisco Bible people, sacrificing for the good of God's larger work is in your DNA. Therefore, it was no surprise when the elders of this church chose to support our first overseas missionary before we could even afford to add staff that we really needed here. Now, that, that choice seemed odd to some people, but we did it for the good of the universal church. That's why we have worked so hard on our many church plants. That's why we've given lots of time and energy and even money to, to help ministries that are not related to us. Now, all this didn't begin with us. It didn't begin with North Texas churches. We see a very powerful object lesson of this kind of sacrifice in Joshua chapter 1. Please open your Bible to Joshua chapter 1. We're in, we're in a study of Joshua chapters 1 through 5, and, uh, and we're going to pick it up where we left off last time. Go to Joshua, 6th book of your Old Testament, chapter 1, and we'll start at verse 10. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people. The then is the context where God had told Joshua to be strong and courageous. He went and met with the elders of the people, and they reminded him to be strong and courageous. Keep that in mind. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, go through the camp 
And tell the people, get provisions ready for yourselves, for within three days you will be crossing the Jordan to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God has given you to inherit. Anybody know enough biblical geography to know what that Jordan is? What is he talking about? What's the Jordan? What is it? It's a river. And, uh, and we know because of time markers in this book and in the book preceding it, uh, when this happened, what time of year. And this is a time of year when the Jordan would have been at flood stage. So this is a very serious undertaking. Okay. <clears throat> um, Lord your God is giving you to inherit. Verse 12. Joshua said to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, remember what Moses' Lord's servant commanded you when he said, the Lord your God will give you rest and he will give you this land. Your wives, dependents, and livestock may remain in the land Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan. But your best soldiers must cross over in battle formation ahead of your brothers and help them until the Lord gives your brothers rest as he's given you, and they too possess the land the Lord your God is giving them. You may then return to the land of your inheritance and take possession of what Moses the Lord's servant gave you on the east side of the Jordan. Actually, in the Hebrew, it says, on the side of Jordan toward the sunrise, which is a nice way to say the east. All right. As you see in your notes, uh, if you're with us online, take a look. There's a link there. If you're in the auditorium, open up your, your bulletin. You'll see the headline in the notes, Joshua introduces partnering with God in his work. That's the big idea in this first paragraph, verses 10 through 11. Joshua introduces the opportunity to be in teamwork with God. Look at your text. This is important work. This is new work. Look at the phraseology in verse 11. Take possession. You must possess. That's work. You must labor. And yet, it is God who gives it. This is an inheritance. Do you earn inheritances? No. No, it's something just given by your father. You didn't earn it. The Lord your God is giving you this to inherit it. This is a wonderful, remarkable combination. There is no line drawn here between the pieces of responsibility. There's no formula given. It's just an honest assessment. Look, God is in charge. He gives. And you must do your all to take possession. I earlier used the term counterintuitive. This is one of the great counterintuitive aspects of biblical living. Humans are called into teamwork with God. Now, that doesn't mean we are equals. We are not equal partners with God. As I have said before, I've given this illustration before, in our partnership with God, we're like two-year-olds baking cookies with grandma, right? The two-year-old is valued and desired in that kitchen. But who is providing all of the expertise? Who is really providing all of the effort? Who is it? It's, it's grandma. Is God the owner and giver of all? Yes or no? Is he? Yes or no? Does he provide for and actually serve his servants in everything they need to do? Yes or no? Is God's servant supposed to work hard and take possession with all the labor that implies? Yes or no? Yes. In fact, doing your all is a sign of trusting God. It's both. God gives and we take possession. People hate this, by the way. Uh, even theologians struggle with this. You know what theologians do? They develop these intricate charts trying to show where human responsibility ends and where God's work begins, and they, they take God's will and come up with different names for it and subdivide it and do all this. Do you know what I think about all those charts? Hogwash. Okay? God's sovereign provision does not have a limit. He is in charge. Human responsibility is only limited by the boundaries of God's commands. My friend Emma just arrived to study in Rome this last week. 
At the last minute, it appeared like she was not going to be able to go because Italian bureaucracy, and by the way, the Italians are the world champs at frustrating bureaucracy. They, they win. They win. The Italians suddenly decided her visa, which was completely in order, was not in order. Her family endured a, a dizzying array of conflicting answers, stonewalling, nonsense. Have you, ever, have you ever had to deal with an insurance company on a large health claim? Have you? Okay, double that hell, and you've got what, what Emma endured this week. So, answer me this. If the Lord wants Emma to go work in Rome, will he provide everything necessary? Will he part the waters? Will he break down the walls? Will he make a way for her to be there if he wants her there? Yes or no? Okay. Is Emma supposed to send package after package to the Italian embassy and, and get notarized documents and make calls and make visits and do all this hard work to try and make it work? Yes or no? It's both. It's both together at the same time. That's what Joshua is describing. You see the same thing in the New Testament as well as one of many examples. I, I just chose one. Ephesians 2.10. Um, read it with me. Would you, everybody together, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do, the apostle Paul says. Do you see that? That's the combination. We're not in charge. We're God's created tool. We are his workmanship. We're crafted by God. He prepares and empowers good things that we are to do. Now, that elicits a really important question, one that you're probably asking in your Italian ambassador uh, imitation. Are we a partnering with God? Are we a partnering with God? Again, this is not a partnership of equals. God does not need us. But he invites us to join him in his work. You realize that's what every day on your job is. Every day on every job is an opportunity to work with God. It doesn't matter if that job is physical labor, if it is computing, if it's raising kids, if it's retirement. Every moment is a privilege of joining with God in work that he prepares in advance for us to do. Of course, the ultimate expression of this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. God the Son did all the work necessary for humans to become enjoined with God. His finished work on the cross paid for sin. Now, according to Jesus, our job is to trust Him. That belief then positions us to fully rely on Him as we do our work with Him. We just read Ephesians 2.10, right? Okay, look at the previous two verses. You're going to see how even our work is an outflow of faith. Ephesians chapter 2 starts this way, verse 8. For you are saved by what, everybody? Grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what, everyone? Good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Let's pause for a moment and respond to that. Pray, pray with me. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for anyone Anyone who is studying your text with me today that is not a believer in Jesus, I pray that you open their eyes. You let them see that you, you invite them into the kitchen. You love them. You want them to come in and enjoy all the, all the goodies of your family. Friend, listen. All your work, however lovely it is, 
does not save you. It does not establish you in God's family. That is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Trusting him, then your work takes on meaning. But you've got to start by believing on Jesus. Trust him for your salvation. He died on the cross and paid for sin. And he rose from the dead so that if you believe in him, you have everlasting life. Trust him right now. Now, as we pray, everybody who trusts Jesus, think about this. As we're praying, just think about that flooded Jordan crossing that Joshua was facing and relate that to your life today. Consider, right now, consider the big, in prayer, think about the big frightening thing that is ahead for you. There's something that's big and scary ahead for every one of us. Whatever yours is, picture the battle before you right now. And with that in mind, ask yourself, am I fully relying on the Lord while at the same time doing all my good works? Am I fully trusting God and letting him empower me to do the good things he prepared for me to do? If the answer is no, then ask God to change that to motivate you. All God's people said, amen. Look up here, if you would, look at the slide. My old professor, Bill Lawrence, summarized Joshua 1 and Ephesians 2 and a lot of other uh, passages this way. I've always liked the way Bill summarizes this. Here's how it works. It's all we are and do plus all he does and is. That is victory. So let's partner with God. Amen? All right, look again at verses 12 through 15. Go back to 12 through 15. Joshua said to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, Remember what Moses, the Lord's servant, commanded you when he said, The Lord your God will give you rest, and he will give you this land. Your wives, dependents, and livestock may remain in the land Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan. However, your best soldiers must cross over in battle formation ahead of your brothers and sisters and help them until the Lord gives your brothers rest as he's given you. And they too possess the land the Lord your God is giving them. You may then return to the land of your inheritance and take possession of what Moses the Lord's servant gave you on the east side of the Jordan. Now here we've got more about teamwork. But this time Joshua commands teamwork horizontally. Teamwork with the brethren. A glance at the map really helps a lot. Look look, look here. Um, The northern tribe of Manasseh, it's only half of Manasseh. Joshua's uh, son Manasseh given an extra blessing because of, uh, as he said, Joseph's son Manasseh given an extra blessing. So half of Manasseh is going to settle on the west side of the Jordan, half on the east. This land has already been opened up. Uh, there was a huge battle, really important battle, against a warlord. It happened right around this area here, against a warlord named Og. Does that not sound like a warlord's name? That's really good. And, uh, and that opened up Manasseh. All the Israelite armies fought in that. They also fought in a battle right around here against another uh, Amorite warlord named Sihon, and that opened up the land for Reuben and for Gad. So all of Israel together, all of their soldiers have fought. They've worked their way north, and they've opened up this property for possession of Reuben and Gad and the half of the tribe of Manasseh. 
That's the background to Joshua's speech here. So what is he doing? He's commanding the soldiers from those two and a half tribes to now cross the Jordan River and go across and help their brethren achieve the same kind of victories on the west side. Significantly, and this is really significant, God is calling on these two and a half tribes, these people, to sacrifice in support of others before their own work is done. Their homes aren't built yet. Their their farms aren't fully functioning. They're told to go and fight for the other tribes, delaying their own gratification. Delayed gratification for a higher calling is distinctive of God's people. This is a distinctive of God's people throughout the Bible. It comes up in a number of books, especially Proverbs and Haggai and Matthew. But delayed gratification has proven to be very difficult for human beings. And it's possible that in our era, it is even harder to handle delayed gratification. Let me just give you a scenario. Suppose Amazon is late delivering your latest order. How does that feel? A a student at Clemson University, a young lady named uh, Chloe Jones, she described this really well. Chloe wrote this. She said, "When when your package is late, you keep checking your tracking app. You wonder if it got delivered to the wrong address. You call customer service even though there is no person there to talk to. Then she says, oh, wait, there's a delivery truck pulling up. Ooh, delivery guy is cute, but my package is cuter. She says, you immediately take it. I'm really glad she said the package. um, Inside and die a little of excitement. You rip open the package while crying tears of joy. You are 100% content with life and all its beautiful wonders. And then she says this, not long after that happiness wears off, you order more stuff online and start this dreaded roller coaster all over again. Close quote. Okay, so try this one. Suppose you, um, suppose you post something on social media. What do most people reflexively do after posting? Go back and check the likes, right? Those likes are a drug. It's a drug that teaches us to seek instant gratification for less and less and less reward all the time. There's a young man in Croatia, a 28-year-old electrical engineer named Yikoslav Nemec, and really a fascinating guy. He, he may have given the best analysis of this I have ever read. So I copied it. I put it on the right side of your notes. Look at the top of the right side of your notes. Uh, Yikoslav Nemec says, modern times are full of challenges related to instant gratification. Many problems in life are connected with the increasing need for having everything as soon as possible. Instant gratification is degrading, he says, the overall quality of our life. Maturity is learning to delay your gratification to exercise the right choice due to a set of higher level principles and abstract values, close quote. So look what Joshua is doing. He's guiding these eastern tribes to delay gratification in order to achieve higher level principles. He's telling them to sacrifice the immediate in order to accomplish more. Which brings up another application question, one that you're, you're asking your Velkoslev Nemec imitation. Are we willing to delay gratification in order to bless God's wider work? Great question, Mr. Nemec. Thank you. Um, I wonder about the answer. Sometimes um, I get the honor of helping out other churches that are in need. Our elders very happily grant me the time and space to consult with other ministries for free, and, and I do so. 
during the pandemic, I, I spoke with pastors a lot. And in those conversations, during the pandemic more so than usual, the conversation would turn to finances. A lot of churches were struggling financially. So I shared with them these percentages. This is not scripture. This is just my experience. But here's what I have seen. I have noticed that if 50% or less of the regular attenders and members of a church are giving to that church, the church is unhealthy. There's something wrong. Something is causing those brethren to be unwilling to sacrifice for the good of the whole. Now, if you've got 51 to 70% of the church is giving, the church is usually functional, but there's problems. There's some kind of problems that are keeping many of the members from doing what God calls us to do, which is to lay our own gratification in order to team up with the body. If 71% or more of the members and attenders give, then the church is usually healthy. And here's the last thing I share. It is exceedingly rare, exceedingly rare to find a church where over 75% of the members and regular attenders are giving. Got it? Now, here's a point I don't make with those pastors, but I think is very important to share with you. That whole graphic is a tragedy that grieves the Lord. Even in the healthiest church, 25% of the engaged people are giving nothing. No, that is as heartbreaking as if 25% of the Israelite warriors just said, no, thank you, we won't go, and refused to, to put themselves on the front line. I taught this passage once at another church. Um, it was a, a one-time gig. I was filling in for a friend, and I taught Joshua 1. And, and a lady that I knew, it happened to be a lady I knew at that church, came up to me afterwards, and she was incensed. Now, this lady is from a, a very wealthy family, and I didn't know this, but she told me that her family gives nothing to the work of their church. Their money's all used for other things. And, uh, and she said to me, and I quote, the way you taught Joshua 1, that hurt my feelings. And I said, good. Good. Your feelings need hurt a lot. And then I told her this story. I was in my first post-college job making very, very little money. Let's just say this. I was so far below the poverty line that I couldn't see it looking up, okay? My dad made a seven-hour trip from, from our childhood home to come check on me and spend some time with me and bring me a, a few ice chests full of meat. <gasps> it was fantastic. And while we were talking and enjoying each other, um, Dad asked if, uh, if he could see my budget. And I said, sure. So I got out my budget kind of proudly, little budget, and I showed it to my dad. And he looked at it, and he went through it, and he said, um, hey, there's no giving here. And I said, Dad, I don't make enough money to give to my church. And he looked at me. <laughs> and he laughed. You know that disappointed, dry laugh that your father can do that just lets you know you're a blithering idiot, you know? Uh, but he's not saying that, but that's what he's saying. And then Dad said this to me. He said, hey, you can give. Everyone can give something. And then he told me this. He said, your Choctaw ancestors had nothing after the Trail of Tears. They had nothing. And yet they all scraped together and everybody gave whatever little bit they could so that the very first building they built after their arrival in Oklahoma was a church. 
And then dad said, Wayne, you don't, you don't want to give just because you're self-centered. I'm looking at your budget here. I see $10 a week you could give without breaking a sweat. After he left, I wasn't going to do it while he was there. I was too prideful. Um, after he left, I thought about what he said, and I read some scripture, and I prayed a lot, and I made a decision. You know what? I'm going to give $15 a week. And I did. I started giving $15 a week, and I have never regretted it. I have never stopped giving. And it's always been well over 10% of our income. And wonder of wonders, I have never been in need. In that response, I was only imitating these people with Joshua. You're going to love their response. Read verses 16 through 18. 16 through 18. They answered Joshua, everything you have commanded us, we will do. And everywhere you send us, we will go. We will obey you just as we obeyed Moses in everything. Certainly, the Lord your God will be with you as he was with Moses. Anyone who rebels against your order and does not obey your words in all that you command him will be put to death. Above all, be strong and courageous. The people respond with unity. There's unity here. Anybody who disobeys is out. We're going to stand together. Now, the put to death statement here bothers some people. This is really less of a threat and more of a statement of fact. Look, a person who won't stand together with the others is dead weight already. Dropping them out is the only way to, to proceed. I've got three volunteers coming up here on stage. Would you give these guys a hand, please? We've got Ben, Ben and Jeremy and Gavin. All right, you guys, right over here. Ben and Jeremy and Gavin, they're going to they're gonna sit in a circle back to back, and they're going to lock their arms, and then when, and when I say go, they're going to they're gonna lean against each other and stand up. You guys ready? Ready, set, go. Look at that. Is that amazing? All right, come over here. Come over here. This is the non-teamwork side, okay? Uh, let's see. You get to be dead weight this time, Gavin. All right, they're going to do the same thing, except this time, Gavin is not participating. He is dead weight. He is going to do everything he can to just stay on the ground. He's not going to be a part. He's not going to play. All right? You guys ready? One, two, three, go. Okay, stop. Don't get hurt. Don't get hurt. All right, good. All right. It's not possible, is it? Okay, leave the dead weight there. All right, you two, come over here. Come over here. Just sleep. It's his choice. All right, back to back. Here we go. All right, you guys ready? Ready, set, go. Nothing to it. All right, give him a hand, please, everybody. Give him a hand. That, that is what they mean by the response in verse 18, they are going to be unified. No dead weight is going to stop the upward movement of God's people together. That's what they're saying. They respond with unity and with submission. Look at that. We will obey you in everything. They surrender their independence before God and his chosen leader. Submission, submission gets a bad rap in our age. It's a beautiful concept that leads to great peace. I think I think the reason people don't enjoy submission is they don't understand it scripturally. Biblically, submission is always dependent on two prerequisites. There are two prerequisites that lead to submission. Without these, you don't have biblical submission. The first is, I willingly surrender, not because I'm weak, but because I'm strong in the face of people. 
I'll explain that more in a moment, but that's very important. I know my strength among people. Secondly, second prerequisite, I know I am not ultimately in charge. I am absolutely weak in the face of God. Okay? Those, those are the two things that, that define our capacity to submit. The, the first principle, uh, this is what's behind New Testament passages that, uh, that call for various people to submit to other people. Wives, for example, are not told to defer to their husband's leadership because women are weak. <laughs> uh, they submit by choice because they know their strength otherwise will be used to create chaos, right? The second principle, I know I'm not ultimately in charge. I'm absolutely weak in the face of God. That is why brilliant, powerful people like you can learn from a flawed leader like me. You know you're strong, but you are wise enough to realize God is far stronger. He's even strong enough to grow you up using the work of a, of a fool like me. That's why the Lord says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong, right? The Israelites submit to Joshua's order because they know they're strong. They know they are strong enough to wreak havoc in their fellowship if they don't submit. And they also know they are weak, and they need to trust the strength of God. How about you? Are you aware of your strength and weaknesses? And, and if you are, will you let that move you to the surrender where God calls for it? For those of you who are with us elsewhere, our base church here is, is in Texas. And, and those of you elsewhere should know that Texans... Um, Texans by nature are rather independent. Um, as, I have, as I have been blessed to travel much of the world, the only people I have met that remind me in any way of Texans are folks from far western Australia. Um, very strong, independent people. Texans are so independent, we don't like the word submission. We call it the S word, right? It's just it's bad to us. Um, but... Even though our independent streak can be useful, we're missing the beauty of God's submission. It prevents us from responding to God's call with surrender. Uh, the Apostle Paul shares his own journey toward healthy surrender. In the other letter to Corinth, we read from 1 Corinthians earlier, this from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, but he, God, said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Uh, author Loria Boyle shared a great comment on this. It's from her article, The Beauty of Surrender. I liked it so much I put this in your notes. Also, Loria Boyle said, if you're like me, you may have fallen for the trap of, of being strong in the face of the many obstacles that life may send your way. I kept telling myself to push forward. On the other side of that barrier was the very thing I wanted. If only I were strong enough to persevere. But, she says, as I basked in the glow of 2 Corinthians 12, I realized I've won victories not because I was strong, but because I surrendered. And therein lay my true strength, his strength, made perfect in my weakness. Close quote. Now, submission does not mean that we should just sit on our hands and do nothing. Remember the big idea in the passage. 
All we are and do, plus all he is and does, that is victory. The Hebrew leaders understand this. They submit to God. They submit to his leader, but they also respond with motivation. Look at the very end of the passage. They remind Joshua to be what God calls him to be, strong and courageous. They're unified. They're obedient. But that doesn't preclude them being motivators. Josh, they say, we respect you enough to remind you of what God himself said to you. Be strong and courageous. By the way, these two words are very significant in this book. Uh, Hazak uh, is the Hebrew term we translate strong. It, it, um, it's, it's from the exact same idea as gird your loins that we talked about earlier in this series. It means to, to prepare yourself. It, it's used a couple of times in Semitic literature for a structure that is prepared to handle a storm. It, it, it can weather the storm. Um, the, the, the other word, uh, amatz, uh, what we translate courageous means to make something impervious. There was a great German scholar, biblical scholar in the 19th century, Wilhelm Genesius, and he said this. He said, Amatz is to be prepared, alert, undaunted. Now, close quote. Now, I looked this last week uh, through as much literature as I could, and uh, I, the oldest use I could find of Amatz was a military use. Um, this is the oldest thing I could find. And it was, this surprised me, I didn't know this. It was about a commander who was ordering that leather straps be taken and be tied around the feet and ankles of his soldiers. Presumably so that they would be strong enough so that when the inevitable crash of the other line hit their line, they would have more strength. I thought what you do, taping ankles for athletes, I thought that was a new thing. That's actually very, 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 very old. How about that? So, so what is God telling us here? He's saying, motivate. You need to motivate each other to strengthen courage. Look at this. These people are motivating each other and their leader. They tell Joshua, gird your loins, son. Stand strong. We're with you. Stand strong. Make sure you tighten your ankles so that you can handle the inevitable crush of battles that are going to be before you. Isn't that awesome? And I should hear stop and brag on this congregation and on our many friends around the world. You do this for me regularly, and I am very grateful. I want to share with you just two notes that I received. These are just from this past week. These are two notes from children. I received a number of wonderful letters from adults. It's not that you're not important, but I just wanted to share with you. These are two letters I got from kids. The first one said, Pastor Wayne, thank you for all you do for the church. God is working through you to bring his love to all people. I was here when you read the Adam Raccoon story to kids and when you played Simon Says with everybody. See, kids like it. Um, the second note says, PW, which stands for Pastor Wayne. At least I'm going to assume that's what it stands for. Um, I love that you make it fun. Look at this kid. Keep up the great work and don't stop being strong and courageous. Isn't that beautiful? Those children's words are beautiful, as are these beautiful motivations from Israel to Joshua. Now, finally, last thing, the people under Joshua also respond with faith. Certainly the Lord your God will be with you. That is a declaration of faith in God's word. We know God is going to do what he promised. Faith. Remember the big idea at the start of the passage. Let me ask you again. Is God the owner and giver of all, yes or no? Does he provide for and actually serve his servants in everything they need to do? Yes or no? 
Is God's servant supposed to work hard and take possession with all the labor that implies? Yes or no? Yes. Doing your all is a sign of trusting God. In fact, these people are on board less because they trust Joshua and more because they have faith in the Lord. One of my theologian friends noted this. He wrote me and said, um, it's interesting that the generation of Caleb and Joshua were dead and buried in the wilderness, and this next generation, the people he's talking to in this passage, had not personally witnessed the signs and miracles that God performed in bringing Israel out of Egypt. And these people are showing more faith than their fathers did. This faith can be seen both in the willingness of Israel to, to proceed with the campaign and the two and a halfers, he means the, the Transjordan tribes, willingness to go with their brothers. Close quote. And of course, all that brings up a final question that we're asking in, in our little girl voices. Are we faithful, unifying, submissive, and motivating? And are we strong and courageous? Great question, girls. Are we on board with God's plan and the servants that he has given to lead it? Flawed as they surely are. Will we motivate them? Will we unify behind them? And when the inevitable crash of battle hits our line... Will we be prepared? Will we be strong and courageous? Let's pray about that. Let's pray with me. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters. That we will, by your grace and for your glory, we will be strong and courageous. In Jesus' name, amen.